Church, if you could please open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, continuing our series this morning through the book, following the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then ending with Joseph. As you're turning to Genesis 25, we're going to start reading in verse 19 in just a moment. I want to ask a question. If it's broken, is it hopeless? If it's broken, is it hopeless? Now, some might say, well, it depends on what's broken. It depends on how it's broken. It depends to what degree it's broken. Sometimes my kids will bring in a toy and they'll say, Dad, well, I broke it. And I have this fear mixed with hope. I'm hoping it's not broken too bad so that I can fix it and be super dad. Like, oh, dad, you're awesome. Chances are it's not. (laughs) I'm not that awesome when it comes to fixing toys. But every now and then they bring in a toy and I think, oh, I can fix this. Yeah, I can get some super glue and do this and I can. And it may not be the way they designed it to work, but it'll work. But there are some times that it's broken and they show it to me, dad, can you fix this? And I look at this and I think, this is hopeless. What about in life, broken relationships? Have you ever been tempted to think with a family member and there's dissension? This is hopeless. Restoration cannot happen here. Sometimes even though we logically know that things aren't really hopeless, it still feels that way. Maybe you have felt that way this morning before. Maybe you're feeling it now. In your marriage, at work, in the church. Brokenness tends to breed hopelessness. But this morning, know this. God is bigger than your brokenness. God is bigger than your brokenness. So here's our main idea this morning. God uses broken relationships to accomplish His purposes. God uses broken relationships to accomplish his purposes. So that means that not only does brokenness not necessarily lead to hopelessness, but actually it is the tool that God sometimes uses to bring about the greatest hope in our lives. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We're continuing to trace the fulfillment of God's promise from Genesis 3.15 through the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a covenant with Abraham, if you'll remember, that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. Their offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Isaac is born, but the promise remains unfulfilled. This morning, as we follow the unremarkable life of Isaac, we'll see broken relationships which are built with broken people. But in the midst of the brokenness, we're going to see that God's purposes do not fail. So hopefully you're at Genesis 25, 19. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's word. I will read starting in verse 19, and I'll go through verse 28. Let us hear the word of God speak to us this morning. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, 
the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who have inspired the words that we just read and the words that we're about to read, would you now take those words and speak them powerfully into our heart, that we might be conformed by the Word of God into the image of God in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his wonderful name. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. In chapter 25, Abraham dies... And we see in 25, before our passage, we ended last week, we see the generations of of Ishmael, and then that is the end of Abraham's life. And so now we see, picking up in verse 29, the generations of Isaac. And in this phrase, this, these are the generations of, is how Moses is moving the story along in Genesis. We see it picked up over and over again. These are the generations of, these are the generations of. This phrase is just another constant reminder that this book is not just merely a story. It is a book of history. These are actual events and actual people. But this is a broken history. Many times we're trained to read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, as a book of heroes of the faith. Be just like these people. Well then, as we begin to read the Bible, we understand Many things that these people did are not worthy of imitation. Now, their faith many times is worthy of imitation, but the figure themselves often are not. They're broken just like us. And these broken people create broken relationships. It's a constant reminder of the effects of the fall. We just can't seem to get along, can we? There's a reason. There's a theological reason for that. There is something deeply wrong within us that only God can fix. And what we're going to see this morning is that God fixes it in part using our brokenness. So this morning as we go through our passage, we're going to see three things regarding brokenness. We're going to see brokenness promised, which we just read about. We're going to see brokenness repeated. And then we're going to see brokenness paved. And we'll look at all three of those in turn. So first, brokenness promised. Just like Sarah, Rebecca was barren. If you look in the text this morning, it says in verse 20 that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebecca, 
And we see that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And it wasn't until she was 60 that she had Esau and Jacob. Just like Sarah, Rebekah was barren. And though we don't get much of a glimpse of Isaac and Rebekah's life, it's remarkably short. Our chapters today just number in two or three chapters worth of verses. So his life is not remarkable, but even though his life is not remarkable and we don't get a big glimpse, Isaac and Rebekah here demonstrate for us how we ought to handle our life circumstances. Look at verse 21. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And then in verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Their first response is to go to the Lord in prayer. Husbands, do you pray for your wife? Do you pray for her anxieties, her insecurities, and her struggles? Or do you do like I do and always try to find the solution yourself? I'm tempted to always try to fix when my wife tells me something is wrong or she's struggling in some way. I'm already thinking, how can I fix this? What do I need to do to fix it? And she lovingly reminds me that sometimes she doesn't want me to fix something. She wants me to listen. And I'm reminded in that moment, one of the best things I can do after listening is speak to the Lord. Husbands, do you pray for your wives, for their sanity, raising children, for their holiness and their purity, wisdom. One of the strongest ways, men, that you can lead and protect your family is through prayer. Because prayer taps into a power that you will never have on your own and that you can never hope to possess on your own. Prayer is a humble acknowledgement that I don't have all the answers and I don't have the power. Isaac prayed to the Lord and then the Lord responded in power. Rebekah prayed to the Lord and the Lord responded in knowledge and wisdom and with answers. Isn't this the perfect picture of our relationships today? Where is it that we men struggle? We try to take power into our own hands. Where is it that our wives typically struggle? We stress and worry about the details and we just don't know what's going to happen and what if this happens and what if. But prayer is the remedy to this. Now after Rebecca prays to the Lord, he answers and tells her this famous promise here in verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. This promise is repeated in Romans 9 as a demonstration of God's sovereignty, his plans, his purposes. And before either of these two were born, before they had done anything, Romans 9 tells us, we see that there's going to be brokenness, division. They aren't out of the womb yet, but we know it's coming. They will be divided. In life, and please hear me on this, brokenness is a guarantee. It is a promise. You will experience brokenness. Anyone that tells you when you come to Jesus, he'll fix all your problems. 
It's probably well-meaning, but it's a lie. We have problems in the Christian life. Look at the world around us. Brokenness is inevitable. It's a promise. Now the good news is for Christians that we have a Savior that we can pray to for power and wisdom in the midst of our brokenness. And God heals brokenness in our lives in a variety of ways. But to think that we'll become a Christian and never experience brokenness again is to be deceived. Here it's promised concerning Esau and Jacob. But if we're honest, we know that this will come up not just in our families, but in all of life. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us this in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This word vanity here refers to something elusive like a mist. Something you just can't grasp or, or get a hold of or get a grip on. It's like it's out of control. Things seem pointless. Life is filled with disappointment. All your work and your labor will lead to disappointment. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the preacher here, many say is Solomon, he gives us a sober but honest assessment of the world. Listen to this. He says, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who were already dead, more fortunate than the living who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Do you feel the hopelessness here in the preacher as he's gaining wisdom? He says, I thought at one point that maybe the dead were better off than the living because they don't have to endure this anymore. But then I got to thinking... Well, no, better than both of those is the one that hasn't even experienced it yet. Brokenness is a promise in life. Political turmoil, global turmoil, familial turmoil, church turmoil. We should not be surprised by these things because we know that this is just a reality living in a fallen world. It should not surprise us when we see this. Now, this is where the Christian has a distinct advantage over the one who does not follow Jesus. Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Jesus is the living water for those who are trapped in the desert wasteland of the world. He is our source of relief, the well that never runs dry, as he promises to the Samaritan woman in John 4. That living water is not merely eternal life. It is relief for us now. We can have abundant life now, not just in the future when we die and go to glory. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, what do you do with that comfort that you receive from Jesus? 
Do you go to Jesus to receive comfort? And when you do, what do you do with it? We are not alone in the desert. There are people around us that are dying of dehydration daily. And you have a spiritual antidote, a living water, and you have tasted it, and you have infinite access to as much of it as you want. You can fill up bottle after bottle, and the well never runs dry. What do you do with that water after you have bottled it and had a sip for yourself? 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that we are able to comfort others with the same comfort that we receive from God. Do you share that living water with people who are dying of thirst? Their bodies are beginning to cramp. They're getting headaches and they're feeling the brokenness of the world. Do you just sit back and say, that's because you don't follow Jesus and just watch them suffer? Or do you go to them and say, I have tasted a living water. Would you just turn and have a sip? Evangelism isn't always just saying facts at people who are suffering. Sometimes it is coming alongside their brokenness and helping them in the power of Christ. So brokenness may be promised, but it is not final. Right after this promised brokenness here, we can already see it taking shape in Genesis 25, starting in verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. We see the seeds of dissension already taking root. First between Isaac and Rebekah, who loved one son and loved another son, and now between Esau and Jacob. And it's worth noting that the reasons for the dissension here, the reasons for the division in part, seem to, pre- seem to be pretty petty, like much of our suffering. You really did that over a meal? You really picked one son to love more than the other because he's a hunter and he can shoot you a deer? As bleak as things may seem, God reaffirms his covenant promise here in Genesis 26. He tells him in verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So brokenness, church, is not the only promise in this life, and it cannot thwart God's promises. Brokenness promised. Next, we see brokenness repeated. Brokenness repeated. Look with me in Genesis 26, starting in verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. 
When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Shitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord." So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When you read this chapter of Scripture, doesn't it feel like deja vu? all over the place. You see Isaac making the same mistake that Abraham made, and Abraham made it twice. You see Isaac going along and redigging all the wells that Abraham dug. You see the same conflict here between the Philistines and the people of God. You see the same covenant being made. You're becoming mighty in the land. Make a covenant with us. Obviously, you're blessed of the Lord. It's like we're reading an account of Abraham just replayed in Isaac's life. Now, some of the details are a little different, but for the most part, this same brokenness is being repeated. Now, this Abimelech here is almost certainly not the one that Abraham encountered. 
This is also true of Fecol, the commander of his army. These are probably titles. In fact, there's many who suggest that all the kings of the Philistines were called Abimelech in much the same way that all the kings of Egypt are called Pharaoh. The same would be true of Fecol. This is about 90 years after Abraham would have had this experience so they're probably not the same. We see Abimelech pop up in Judges 9 and 2 Samuel 11, and these are all different kings of the same people. So this explains why when we read this, it looks like, well, what, did Abimelech forgot what had happened? He has no idea. So now we see brokenness repeated from Abraham down to Isaac and then from one king down to another. It's like there's just this historical amnesia. And they have forgotten or not been told of these things that happened in the past. Isaac is following right in his father's footsteps. And it's not a good thing. He shows us that the apple does not fall f- far from the tree. The other day, Stacy was sitting on the couch in our living room. And we're having a conversation about something. We had moved some furniture in our house. And she wasn't sure how she felt about it. And so we're like, oh, well, we like it better this way. We want it this way. And so before you know it, you're going to end up moving the furniture all the way around the house, and it's going to end up right back where it was. Well, it's not that way this time. We're trying something. out. we're like, okay, let's try it out. And she was stressed, and she had this light bulb moment. She looks at me, and she says, I'm becoming my mother. I'm becoming my mother. I have similar situations where I get stubborn and argumentative, and then I think, I'm becoming my mother. We have these traits in us, and we look at our parents and we say, I love my parents, but this is one thing that I think I want to do different in my life. And we tell ourselves we're not going to repeat their mistakes, and then guess what we do? We just repeat their mistakes. And a lot of times we make it worse. We see the same thing here. Now the thing that's interesting about this is that we see that in our parents, Stacy sees it in her parents, I see it in my parents, you see it in your parents, and there's a good chance that your parents don't see it. They don't see what you see that ought not to be repeated, and so they don't train you to avoid that mistake. Now, sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. They don't know what they're passing along to you. We see these things that we don't want to be like, And we end up being exactly like it because we're not trained to recognize it. It's because those faults have not been owned yet. And so you can't prepare for what you don't recognize. We repeat our mistakes when we fail to own them and to name them. Obviously, Abraham did not sit down with Isaac and recount this embarrassing account from his life that he did twice. And he didn't think to sit down and tell Isaac, hey, don't do this. Or he did, and Isaac said, I don't care, I'm doing it anyway. Failure to own our sin is what keeps us trapped in it. When we fail to own sin in our lives, we never seek a way of escape. We don't see the need to. This is one of the biggest reasons that some never come to faith in Christ. It's a failure to own your sin. If we don't recognize the problem, we'll never seek a solution, will we? Nothing's wrong. We don't need to do anything about it. 
Many Christians make the same mistake. We struggle with similar sins over and over again just because we fail to own it. It's like we're living in denial. This is why the Bible calls us to confess our sin in two ways. First, we confess to the Lord Jesus. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the double cure that we just sang about. We are forgiven of our sin and then we are cleansed. We are purified from our unrighteousness. There is no way to be cleansed from sin and saved from God's wrath apart from confessing to God that you are a sinner in need of grace. You will not experience forgiveness in Christ until you admit, I need it. I deserve wrath, but I hear that you are giving grace for free. I want that. Until you admit your need for Christ, you will not receive him truly. But we don't only confess to God. Christians are called to also confess to one another. James 5.16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be Healed. Now, this instruction is for, is for Christians in the church. One of the ways that we turn from sin on a regular basis is owning our sin among one another. Owning our sin together. I was listening to a podcast yesterday. I had to do some painting in the bathroom. I hate painting. When it's time to paint, it's time to put on headphones and listen to a podcast. And this one is called You're Not Crazy. And these two pastors get on there and just dialogue with one another about problems in the church. And they're talking about generating a gospel culture in the church. And one of them said that he had this men's small group that was meeting, discussing the scriptures, learning in theology. And then he said, I don't know what stirred this, but I just had this moment where I said, guys, can we try to do something in generating community? Let's all break up in twos. And you share with this other brother the worst thing that you have ever done. And after you've shared this with one another, you pray for one another. He said, I'll be honest. I don't know where that came from. And that was difficult. But every group shared. And every group prayed. And there was weeping. And he said, after that, we went from just having a relationship to being brothers. And every week they would come together and they started confessing, I'm struggling with this sin lately, I need your prayer. And then they give one account and he said, well, how do you know what to confess? He said, the thing I need to confess is the thing I don't want to confess. I know when I'm driving to that group, I really don't want to confess this. That's the thing I probably need to confess. Christians are called to confess sin to one another and to pray for one another. This is how God designs the church to build itself up. Christians can help one another break cycles of repeated sin in our lives through confession. I think it's interesting. In Titus chapter 2, Paul tells Titus to tell the older women in the church to train the younger women. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he tells Timothy to train up these men in the church who can train up other men in the church. 
There's this constant helping one another and building one another up to break this cycle of sin. So while repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus forgives our repeated brokenness, it is confession and Christian community within a church that breaks its cycle and power in our lives. That is brokenness repeated. Finally this morning, we see brokenness paved. Look with me at Genesis 27. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves and you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck, and she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game so that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord, your God, granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. 
He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants. And with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? This story is simply the fruit of what had already been sown earlier. Esau and Jacob were set against one another from the start by actions that they partook in. Jacob and Rebekah were already set against one another regarding their children from the start. And on top of that, right before this passage in Genesis 26, 34, and 35, Esau, being 40 years old, takes two wives from the Hittites there, and they make life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Chapter 27 is really the culmination of a life of brokenness that all erupts at once. And it's mesmerizing to read this story. You can kind of see it playing out with this old man who can't see anymore. And he can kind of feel and he can smell and he can hear. And he thinks, this is my son Esau. And then to realize he, not only Esau, has been stolen from as messy as this situation is, you can't help but just ask the question, what did you expect to have happen? What did you think was going to happen when you put together this scheme? Did you think that everything was just going to be okay? This whole family paved the way for their own heartache. 
We already know that Isaac loved Esau's hunting ability and his food. We already know that Isaac and Rebekah loved their boys differently. We already know that Isaac betrayed Rebekah's trust in Gerar by saying, she is my sister. At this point, brokenness is inevitable. They set themselves up for it. Isn't this true for our lives also? Don't we pave the way for much of our brokenness? Don't we set ourselves up for failure and disappointment? We pave the road that leads to our own destruction, and then we walk the path that we've paved without batting an eye. We seldom will fall into significant sin in a single moment. No one wakes up thinking, I'm going to sin significantly today against the Lord. No one does. It is a culmination of a series of mistakes that leads you down this rabbit hole until suddenly you get so far in and you look back and you can't believe how far you've traveled. Sometimes you don't see it until you're so far in that you are trapped and hopeless in the darkness. Significant sin can be avoided when we cease paving the path that leads to it. We must learn to recognize when we are setting the way for our brokenness. Repentance is not just a reactive response. It doesn't just respond to sin by saying, oops, shouldn't have done that, sorry, and I really am sorry, I really do mean it. That's not all repentance is. Repentance is also proactive. It asks, what led to my sin and what should I have done to stop it? What am I doing now that's leading me into sin and what needs to be done to stop it? Listen to Jesus in Matthew 18, 7 through 9. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Repentance is not just concerned with individual sin, specific sin. It's concerned with the source. Whatever the source is, it must go or else we are just paving the way for brokenness. If you're a non-Christian visiting with us this morning... Let me tell you what the ultimate source of sin is. It's your heart. It's your heart. We all have sinful hearts. You have a sinful heart, and I have a sinful heart. That's why we sin. So many times we treat individual sin in our lives like that's the problem. And so we do all we can to rid ourselves of that individual sin, but then what happens is later down the road, another sin that's related but different pops back up. It's because we're treating the symptoms without going back and treating the cause. 
Instead of cutting the hand off that causes us to go into sin, we just remove it from that location somewhere else, but then it grabs hold of sin somewhere else. The true problem lies in the heart from which all of our sin flows. And there is only one way for the sinful heart to be changed, and that's the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. He forgives us and transforms our hearts so that now we will not suffer the wrath of God one day in judgment. We have turned to Jesus from our sin, we've trusted him in faith, and now we are following him daily, knowing that I will be saved on that terrible day. And as we follow him, we look at our lives and say, what am I doing now that's leading me backwards instead of leading me forwards? We repent daily. Those of us who have had our hearts changed, we are called to pave a new road. To search out sin in our lives and cut it off at the source. Do not be like Isaac and Rebekah. Stop and deal with your brokenness. Talk about it. Confess it to one another before it erupts into something that will divide whole families. Where do you have unresolved issues building up in your life? Where is brokenness being stored up like a shaken up two liter, just waiting for the pressure to release so that it can make a mess everywhere. Is it in your family? Is it at work? Is it in your personal relationships? Is it in your church? As we end our time this morning, let me remind you of the end of this story. This story is filled with brokenness, but through this broken family line, would come the solution to our brokenness, Jesus Christ. The promise of Abraham is spoken over Jacob at the end here in Genesis 28, verses 3 through 4 again. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Do not let brokenness in your life pull you down. God uses brokenness to accomplish his purposes. And that's what he wants to do in you as well. So church, may we recognize that brokenness is inevitable. May we not simply accept that reality, but may we confess our own sin to one another and to the Lord so that we can break this cycle of repeated brokenness in our lives. And may we search out the source of our brokenness that we might cut it off at the source and pave a new way of righteousness. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, as we read this account in Genesis and we see the utter destruction in relationships because of sin, we see how our desires are pulled away from a genuine desire for you how we are so tempted, so easily tempted to forget your greater promises and we get wrapped up in the mundane matters of life and how that sows these seeds of dissension that divide us from our family. Lord, as we think on these things, we rejoice in remembering that you are the sovereign king of the universe, that you see the source of of dissension and brokenness and sinfulness in our lives. You see it in our hearts. 
in a way that we cannot. And you have purposed a grand purpose that Jesus Christ might take our hearts of stone. He might step in and live within us and change them into living, beating hearts of flesh. That we might be caused to walk in your statutes. That we might have new desires and affections for your ways. Lord, would you help us to turn from our repeated promised brokenness. To stop paving the way for our brokenness. But to turn daily in repentance to you. As we trust for you to do in our lives what only you can do. And for those souls in this room this morning that do not know the relief of peace that can be had in Jesus Christ. They don't know what it's like to be freed from the bondage of sin. Not made perfect, but made new. I pray that you would stir their hearts this morning that they might finally turn to you and trust you in faith. That they might finally turn from their sin, not just individually, but the pattern of sin in their lives. That they might trust you finally and be saved from the wrath that is to come. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ for his honor and glory and for our good. Amen.